Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but we, when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah indeed. Jesus, we are here this morning for you because you're worthy. 
We are here this morning because, not simply because you put on our skin, not simply because you walked in our shoes, not simply because you died the death we should have died, not simply because you rose from the dead and now reign on high, but Lord, we are here because even before you did all of that, you were worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our praise this morning. So Jesus, we're praying that you would come and meet us in, in a way different than we expect. That you would penetrate our hearts, Lord, in those places where we most need it and maybe don't even know it. That you would reshape us this morning, Lord, and make us more like yourself. There's something deep inside of us, Lord, that resonates with that idea. We know we were made for more than this. We praise you that you're the one who tells us that. And so, Lord, would you get our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on you? Help us, Lord, to reorient our entire perspective. Start with me. Use, Lord, this broken vessel to speak words of life and light into this place. Without you, I have nothing. But with you, Lord, there is nothing impossible. So come. Come, Holy Spirit, and fall afresh upon us in this place. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. amen. You may be seated. All right, I'm going to need your help this morning, friends. I'm going to need your help with a survey. And for you kids who are in here because it's Family Sunday, I want you to know you're a part of this. So you've got to pay attention, okay? Here's the survey. Please stand up and remain standing if you have ever broken your arm. Come on, stand up and remain standing. Everybody in the room, this is Liam's broken arm, okay? He broke his arm a few years ago. Okay, stand up and remain standing. Everyone still, still stand. Stand up and remain standing if you've ever had stitches. This is Liam with stitches on his forehead. If you're noticing a theme here, it keeps going, okay? Stand up and keep standing if you've ever been sick enough to go to the hospital. Come on. Stand up and keep standing if you've ever been sick enough to go to the hospital. Okay, stand up and keep standing. That's Liam, by the way, again. Stand up and keep standing if you've ever had someone gossip against you. Come on, stand up and keep standing. Stand up and keep standing if you've ever suffered a broken heart. Okay. Please remain standing. Okay, we got a, a room full of people who know what it's like to suffer, right? Who know what it's like to get hurt. Okay, please remain standing if you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed your version of suffering, please remain standing. Don't tempt me, Frodo. Okay. <laughs> What's the point? The point is simply this. Everyone suffers, and no one likes it. And so the question is not if we're going to suffer, but how and why. Everyone suffers. You saw it in the room this morning, but no one likes it. If you came in here this morning with suffering, with burden, with brokenheartedness, with a heaviness on your soul, with a sense of, I wish things were different, please know you're in good company because everyone else in the room has already experienced that, and for many of us, we currently are as well. Everyone experiences suffering. The question is, what are we gonna do with it? 
Why are we suffering? Is there bigger purpose? This morning, we continue in our sermon series through the book of Acts that we've been calling the mission of the Holy Spirit. And in this sermon series, we've been unpacking what it means to walk full of the Spirit, what it means to be those who live post-resurrection of Jesus, because it changed everything. And today, we're going to lean into how even suffering has been changed. Last week, you remember... Tommy preached an excellent sermon for us talking about this passage, the first part of this passage in Acts chapter 5, where it says Peter did crazy things, things that were just like Jesus did and even greater, where Jesus, they would touch the hem of his garment and be healed, but Peter walked by and his shadow literally healed broken people. And you're just like, how is that even possible? Well, it's possible because of these passages of Scripture, in case you were wondering, and there's more. But the question that Tommy raised for us that we're going to continue to answer today is simply this. Why don't we see more of these today? If that's true... Why don't we see more of it today? If that was your question and continues to be your question, there's more of God's answer for us today and every week as we unpack the book of Acts together. This morning, this is our theme. Surrendering to repurposed suffering is a primary pathway to intimacy and authority. Let me read that again so it sinks in. Surrendering to repurposed suffering is a primary pathway to intimacy and authority. We're going to unpack that with two points. Suppression reveals our hearts, and surrender expands our authority. So first, suppression reveals our hearts. Our passage for this morning starts off with this reality, that the high priest and all of the leaders who are with him, it says, are filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy, what does that mean? Well, remember last week and the weeks before that we, when we're unpacking the first couple chapters of Acts, you see the apostles doing many miraculous signs. They're doing crazy stuff and they're speaking about the most miraculous sign, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Note this, friends. The high priest, his family, and all the Sadducees with him were alive when Jesus rose from the dead. They were alive. They saw it. If they didn't see it with their own eyes, they know someone who saw it because the Bible talks about 500 witnesses, which means they only count men back in those days, which means there's thousands of witnesses to Jesus over a 40-day period after everyone in the world saw him hanging on a tree and dead in the tomb. They then witnessed him walking around and teaching his disciples. In short, the high priest in our passage for this morning and all of the leaders, they're not interested in facts. They're not interested in what actually happened, in truth. They're not interested. What they're interested in is being right. They don't want to be shown to be wrong. And so they're constantly looking at miracles. Literally, miracles like this person was literally born crippled, over 40 years old, still crippled. Peter and John come over, and this person's not crippled anymore. Like, wait a second. Why aren't you just rejoicing over this? Why aren't you full of joy and singing from the mountaintops? My goodness, this is amazing. Can you, do you see what happened? We know this. There must be something more. Why? Because for the high priest and the Sadducees to admit that would mean one thing and one thing only. They were wrong. And that their positions of authority and power are no longer valid that they got it wrong, they were leading people in the wrong direction, and now they're gonna have to readjust their entire lives and lose the power that they once had. Does anyone else know of any systems in our world where it's all about maintaining power and not necessarily about truth? No, no one? Oh, thank you for one honest person in the room. 
okay, thank you. Yes, all over the place, right? Everyone wants to do all this, this, oh, this is our value, and this is what we really stand for, when so much of the time, here's my cynicism coming out, right? So much of the time, it's about maintaining power. It's always been that way, friends. Think about it from the time when you're little and you're in, say, elementary school or middle school, right? And you're like the stud on the sports team until some better athlete moves into the community. And all of a sudden, that person is the stud or the studette. How do you feel towards that person? Are you like, yeah, now we're gonna win a lot more games? Or are you like, that person's a loser. We don't need that person on our team. Who who wants the new kid on their team? Not me, right? Because they're a threat to our perceived value and authority and power. Do you see it? Do you see it? So the reality is, in all of our lives, from the beginning, we struggle with this same principle. What we see in our passage, however, is that the apostles, because uh, they're with Jesus, they're not overwhelmed by these attempts of suppression. There's a desire to suppress. There's power being used to suppress. But notice this, the greater power always wins. The greater authority does not need to prove itself, it just is. And so even though they're using all of their power and authority, even though though they've locked up Peter and John in prison, and even though it looks like they've won, and Peter and John are suffering at this point, it says an angel of the Lord comes, another miracle, opens the doors, gets them out, closes the doors, locks them, and nobody sees anything. And then they're in the temple courts the next morning, preaching and teaching, and everyone's like, what just happened? Again, they should be like, whoa, we need to investigate. This sounds amazing. But what they wanted to do was suppress. It says even more, they wanted to permanently suppress. They wanted to kill them. Because in permanently suppressing them, they wouldn't have to deal with this message about this Jesus and his resurrection that was literally changing the world. It says in our passage that they didn't kill them, but they flogged them. How many times do you get beaten, whipped, when you get flogged in the ancient world? 40 minus one. I don't know why they refer to it that way. I have to do more research. 39 times. That's not a small thing. Thank you. Good job, Timmy. 39. 39 times. Anyone in here been whipped 39 times in a row? If my little brother was here, he'd raise his hand. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. It's not small, right? But the reason why they opted for flogging and not death, please realize, was flawed logic. In our passage, it says that Gamaliel stands up, and he is one of the teachers of the law. He's actually the, the, the mentor of a guy named Saul, who we're going to meet in a couple of weeks, right? So Gamaliel stands up, and he says, listen, let's, let's let this play out a little bit. We already know about Thutis and Judas. Now, just for the record, we know nothing about Thutis. There's no history around Thutis. There's a lot of history around Judas the Galilean. We know who he is. In fact, Jesus had to deal with Judas's legacy in Jesus's lifetime. Do you remember when? It was when the Herodians and the Pharisees got together and decided to try to challenge Jesus. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Do you remember that story? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're referencing Judas the Galilean there. Judas the Galilean is a guy who led a revolt around 86, 6 AD, right? 
And he, he was the one who said, you should not pay taxes to Caesar. And do you know what happened to Judas? Dead. Killed. And all of his followers were dispersed. Apparently, the same thing happened to Thutis, because that's what Scripture reveals, right? So you got two examples of guys who are wannabe messiahs, wannabe kings, who the evidence of their lack thereof is the fact that they were killed, stayed dead, and all of their followers were dispersed. Gamaliel uses this as logic to disprove Jesus. Do you see the irony here? Jesus has already been dealt with. He's already been crucified at this point. He's already dead, but he's also already risen from the dead. So the very thing that they're pointing to is evidence of, look, this is how we know a false Messiah, is the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. They have actually proven the opposite of their point. Right? And then when he says at the end, if this plan or undertaking is from, is from God, you won't be able to overcome it. Duh! You've already tried. You put the dude to death. And he lives. And so Gamaliel reasons, and they're all like, oh yeah, that sounds really good to us. Because they're not wanting to deal with the resurrection because they don't want to have to let go of their, what's that P word again? Power. They won't, don't want to have to let go of their power. That's what's going on in our passage for this morning. Please note. Suppressing the truth does not change the truth or its implications in our lives. Can we say that out loud together? Suppressing the truth does not change the truth or its implications in our lives. Easy example. Who knows who this guy is? They can take our lives, but they can't take our... Thank you, thank you, right? 13th century, right? The king of England tries to squash the Scottish rebellion for independence, their war of independence, and so they put to death the leader, William Wallace. How does that work out for him? Was their attempt at suppression actually successful? Not so much. How about this guy? How about this guy, right? Another guy put to death because he's leading a, a march for, for independence, not oh, for... Equal rights, right? Civil rights. And the world tries to suppress, or some in the world try to suppress him. And how did that work out? Not so much. The attempt at suppressing, suppressing the truth did not actually touch the truth. It didn't actually change the truth or its implications in our lives. The question for us to wrestle with today, friends, is simply this. Where are we doing that? Where are we suppressing the truth about Jesus in our lives? For some of us, that answer is all of Jesus, right? I don't want to have to deal with Jesus like the high priests and the Sadducees because dealing with Jesus means I'm going to have to deal with a lot of stuff that's already set in stone in my life. There's a firm foundation for it. I have my power structures. I have my comfort zones, and I'm not willing to deal with it. If that's where you're at, I'm glad you're here. Please keep coming back and let's wrestle together. But can I ask you an honest question? Is it really working? It's not a shame question. I'm not trying to shame you. It's an honest question. Is it really working when you build your structure of, of power and control and then live in it? Does it give you the stuff it promises? Or does it actually make you a slave to fear and anger 
and rationalization. Rationalizing all the ways it's not working out and pretending like you're okay with that. It's okay to be honest, friends, as long as there's another answer, right? If you're honest and there's no answer, you just get despair. But if you're honest and there's a different answer, what you get is hope. What you get is hope. And that hope is for us this morning. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus. Where are you trapped? For a lot of us, it's in this room, it's not the big picture Jesus, it's all the ways in our lives where we have basically said, Jesus, you're okay over here, but not over here. It's, it's where I've said to myself, my time is my own, and so I'm gonna do with it as I wish. And so for me, you know what that looks like? Constantly burning the candle at both ends. Because it's my time, and I have so many people to, to care for and serve, and, and it's right and good, and I should just keep going, and go harder and go faster, and, and that's how good things are gonna happen. And you know what happens when that happens? You burn out. Who wants me to burn out? God or the enemy of my soul? Right? So when I come to God and I have all these good reasons why I should just keep pressing, and he says, you need to rest. You need to rest and trust me. Am I going to trust him with my time? Or am I going to build a big fortress around my life and tell him no? There's a whole list of things on here, isn't there? Priorities, sexuality, money, power, righteousness. Let me stop there. How many of us tell ourselves this? I'm a good person because of all these things. We define righteousness in a way that's attainable for me but not necessarily attainable for you. And then we live there as if that's ever going to be enough as if that's not hurting the people around us. What about when, when it comes to our money? I skipped right over that. You were, you were glad I skipped right over that one, right? But let's circle back to money, right? What about when it comes to our money? Do you know, st- st- statistically, I always struggle with that word. Statistically, if those who claim to be evangelical Christians in the United States tithed, tithing is the baseline giving for Christians. Jesus says all the money belongs to him. You should give generously, well above what the old covenant was. The old covenant was 10%. How many of us in here, don't raise your hand, give well above 10%? The biblical principle is you bring your tithes to the, to the store, to the temple, which is here. This is your church. And then you give above and beyond elsewhere. How many of us do that? Again, don't raise your hand. If the church, the evangelical church, literally just tithed, just us, no one else gave any more, do you know what we would be able to get rid of in the world? Hunger. Hunger. But I'm not interested in that. My money's my own. I'm hungry. I don't want to be hungry. Right? I need my Starbucks every day. Now listen, that sounds like I'm shaming you. I'm making an you know, underhanded joke there. Right? Nothing wrong with Starbucks if you want a little, little coffee, right? But here's, here's the issue. When we come to God and we say, this part's off limits, and I'm justified in that, that's where we start to build this whole life of rationalization. And we say in any one of these areas, I should be okay doing it my way. And therefore, I'm going to do it my way. And I want you to hear me say this. It's always a trap. Always. It never works. The maker of the universe is the one who says, this is how my universe works. 
Anytime we say to him, I'm not so sure about that. Who do you think's right? As a parent even, when you're kind of the maker of your child, when your little kid comes to you and says, I don't think I wanna do it your way, what do you say? Okay, let's do it your way, let's let you run out in traffic because that's gonna work well for you? Of course not. When the maker of the universe says that to us in love, it's an invitation, not a condemnation, to come and try his way freshly. And what that is is surrender. That's our second point. Surrender expands our authority. One of the parts of this passage that should have really caught you by by surprise was after they were whipped 39 times, they left rejoicing. Christian just read it like it was nothing, right? Like, and anytime we read it, we just read right through it. And they left rejoicing. They were whipped 39 times. And they left rejoicing. Something has happened. And that something is repurposed suffering. God has done something through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that changes everything. Listen, even our suffering. If that's not good news this morning, then there's no such thing as good news. Even our suffering has been repurposed. Let's dive in here just a little bit. In Luke chapter 9, in Matthew 16, Jesus says the same thing. If anyone would come after me, she must deny herself, pick up her cross, and follow me every day. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself every day, pick up his cross, and follow me. Is Jesus being clear about the way of the cross? Is he being clear about what it means to actually follow him? There is no other way. There is no other way. If anyone would come after me, they must sit in the electric chair every day, deny themselves and follow me. See, we we don't have crosses. We just, we look at them, we're like, oh, that's nice, it's decoration. No, 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 that was the, the ancient electric chair. That was the ancient lethal injection. It's startling when Jesus says, the way to follow me is the way of death. But that's because only through death do you rise again, friends. That's what he's trying to get us to see. And so when it says in James chapter 1, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you experience trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, or the word is telos, its end, its purpose, which is to make you perfect, whole. What you were designed, that's what the word telos brings, what you were designed to be is what God is gonna use suffering to make you. Therefore, that's why we rejoice in our sufferings, Romans 5, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because God has already poured his love out into our souls through his Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Purposeful, repurposed suffering has the end goal of making us like Jesus, of filling us with his love, of giving us eyes to see, my goodness, God, you're doing something. This really hurts. Yeah, he is, and he's not done. What what else? And it enables us to know Jesus. Philippians 3, 8, 9 is this passage where, 8 through 11 rather, this passage where Paul talks about all the things that make him cool, all the things that give him power, all the things that should, he should be bragging about. 
I, you know, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was trained in Gamaliel's school. I'm a Pharisee. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. All these are bragging points, and I consider it all rubbish. Have you ever been to the Bronx Zoo, and you've seen a monkey pick up its own poo and throw it? Have you seen that? Be honest. It's quite funny. That's what Paul's talking about right here. That word rubbish literally means flung dung. I consider everything that I used to brag about flung dung. If you have poo, throw it now, right? Everything. Why? Because of the all-surpassing worth of what's that word? Knowing Jesus. Sharing in his sufferings that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Please don't miss this. There's something about deepening intimacy that is only experienced in the context of suffering. We only grow in a particular way through suffering. Intimacy with the Lord, we know Jesus. He said the all-surpassing worth of knowing him is worth suffering with him. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8, and he says this. It's not just about knowing him. It's not just about being like him, but this is the point that everything builds towards with our earlier question. Why don't things happen like they used to? The word we're talking about is glory. Glory. In Romans 8, Paul says this. We have not been given a spirit that makes us a slave again to fear, but we have been given the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, we are heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And then what does he say? That we will share in his glory as we share in his suffering. Can't we just cut off those, that last little bit? And we'll share in his glory, period. <laughs> right? That's what we want to do, but there's no other way. Because we live in a broken world, friends. We will share in his glory as we share in his sufferings. Why? Because it's by his wounds that we are healed. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 quotes Isaiah 53, the passage we hear all the time at Easter time on Good Friday. By his wounds we are healed. There are two levels of meaning there. It's literally by his wounds on the cross that we are healed. But it's also as we are united to his suffering that we are made whole. Do you see it? Do you see it? Only as we share in his suffering will we also share in his glory. It's what, what uh, Tommy was talking about a couple weeks ago when he quoted from Ephesians chapter 3, where it's talking about this capacity that grows in us. You know, like when he says, for this reason I bow before the, the Father in heaven, and I ask that you might have the strength to comprehend what is the height and depth and width and breadth that is the love of God in Christ Jesus, and you might be filled with all the fullness of God. It's this glorious passage about how Paul is praying for all those who come after him, including us, Hallelujah. But do you know what he says right before that passage? He unites two things together. Suffering and glory. That's the context for that great prayer. The two things we don't want to go together. We get expanded capacity for the love of God as we willingly enter into repurposed suffering. We get expanded capacity for the love of God as we willingly enter into repurposed suffering. 
It's what Hebrews talks about, not from the context of suffering. It says it's discipline. <laughs> Who loves to be disciplined by mom and dad? Anyone? Anyone? No? Me neither. God says when you suffer for righteousness sake, you're being disciplined. God is disciplining you because you're a beloved child and he wants you to grow. And all discipline yields the peaceful fruit, he calls it, of righteousness. Hallelujah. So in sum, in case you missed the point, suffering repurposed is to unite us to and to make us like and to expand our heart for and to fill us with the glory of Jesus. That is the point. And if we will simply surrender here, we will see the kingdom come. Let me explain what I'm saying. What does it mean if we surrender here, we will see the kingdom come? One of my mentors, Rob Reamer, puts it this way. Spiritual authority is rooted in identity, expanded in intimacy, and activated by faith. Do you see that? That's what we just talked about. Spiritual authority is rooted in identity. When we suffer, we, we begin to know who we are. We know the intimacy of God in that suffering, and we get to make choices, that's faith, that expand our hearts for him. It's in suffering that we find this, right? And there's two examples I want to give you of this, and they're here intentionally, because I think there's something to be said about when when we start interacting in the book of Acts and asking big picture questions about miracles and things like that, it's tempting as a preacher to only put examples of Miracles that happened in the way that we prayed them. Did you hear what I just said? And so it's tempting to put up people that have prayed these awesome prayers and done these huge revivals and they've seen all this amazing stuff. And we've talked about some of that stuff. And we're going to talk about one person along those lines today in that way. We're going to talk about a second person who, listen, please don't miss this, prayed similar prayers, asked for the same kind of outcome, and heard a glorious, I, don't, I do not use that word lightly, a glorious, no. God is the one who heals. God is the one who decides when to heal. God is the one who will make whole. We will all be made whole one day. We will all be made whole one day. Every prayer for healing will be answered. It just may not be in your timing. Heidi Baker, someone we talked about a couple weeks ago, Heidi Baker is a missionary to Mozambique, Africa. She is crazy. She's crazy. If you start reading her stuff, if you start interacting with her, you will fall in love with her passion for Jesus, but she will push you to the end of yourself because of the stuff she does by faith. It is amazing. And remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how God called her to pray for blind people to receive their sight, and she started praying for blind people, and nothing happened for a year. She prayed at gatherings of thousands and thousands of people for blind people, and no one was healed. Lots of people came to know Jesus, but no one was healed until God started to open that door. And then one lady, and then another lady, and then another lady, and then it wasn't just blind people, it was deaf people. It was paralyzed people, and healing started to break into her ministry everywhere. She tells the story of when she herself got sick with MRSA. You know what MRSA is? bad flesh-eating disease. She went to the hospital three times for it. Twice left by faith, believing that she was going to be healed. The third time, she was in for a month on the strongest antibiotics, and the doctors told her, there's no hope, you're going to die. You can maybe try to go to a university hospital and find some experimental treatment, but we're, we're done, we have nothing for you. 
So she prayed, and God said, buy running sneakers. Now, I don't know about you, but if I have MRSA, and God says, buy running sneakers, I'm thinking I might have misheard him, right? Like, I'm dying, I can't walk, you want me to buy running sneakers? So she, she calls her husband, her husband goes out and gets some running sneakers, puts it by her bed, and she watches and looks at them, and just waits, and prays, and waits, and prays, and she has a speaking engagement that she has not canceled over in Canada, all the way around the world. And God says, go to Canada. So she calls her team and says, we're going to go to Canada. And they're like, you're out of your mind. You should go someplace where they can help you. You're dying. Nope. God says, go into Canada. I'm going to Canada. Gets on a plane, goes to Canada. God says, you're going to preach on Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah is all about the people of God returning to the land of Israel after exile, rebuilding the temple, but getting really worn out and exhausted and discouraged and disappointed because their prayers aren't being answered because the suffering keeps getting harder and heavier. Does it sound familiar? But in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5, he says, preach this to the people. Heidi says she stood up at the pulpit and she declared the verse, Zechariah 2, 5. And I, the Lord, will be a wall of fire around them and I will be their glory within And as soon as she declared that, she said she felt electricity fall from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet, up and down three times, and she was completely healed of the MRSA. The sores were gone, all the infection was gone, and the next day she put on her running shoes and went for a jog. Our God is healer, friends. Our God is healer. Now, next example. Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny's 17 years old, out like any other 17-year-old with her friends at a lake swimming, dives in off of a dock and breaks her neck, becomes a quadriplegic, and while she's hanging in traction, is asking God to take her life, does not want to live anymore because she's been begging for a miracle, and all she keeps hearing is no. Johnny Erickson Tata is over 70 years old now. That's over 50 years in a wheelchair. 50 years of not being able to use your arms or legs. 50 years of never being able to go to the bathroom by yourself. 50 years of not being able to feed or clothe yourself. 50 years of suffering. And she tells a story. At one gathering she was at, I saw a video of it. I don't remember where it was where she says, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna stand up. And everyone's like, yeah, she's gonna stand up, yes! And I'm gonna turn to God and I'm gonna say, Jesus, before you send this wheelchair to hell, and everyone's like, yeah, send the wheelchair to hell, right? Thank you for it. Because without it, I would never have known you the way that I know you. There is a woman who gets it, who understands that union in the sufferings of Christ is union in the glory of Christ. And she has been so instrumental to those who, have, who live with disabilities, who've brought thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who are otherwise overlooked, not cared for, and looked at as the least of these to faith in Jesus. And they will all be able to say one day to that Jesus, before you send this wheelchair to hell, thank you for it.
That's the miracle of God, friends. Friends, we hear two conflicting stories this morning. How many of us want the second one? Of course we all want the first one. Of course we all want God to answer the prayer that we want him to answer. But please don't miss what both of these ladies have in common because this is the key. They developed such intimacy with God that their prayers were his prayers. Their desires were his desires. They prayed what they heard. And when you pray what you hear from God, you can know God is going to answer your prayer. That's spiritual authority. It's not me, in Jesus' name, doing whatever I want. In Jesus' name, saying whatever I want, commanding whatever I want. No, it's me in Jesus, at Jesus' feet, listening, growing, knowing, loving. Nothing else, nothing else matters. Nothing else. I give it all to you. I fully surrender. And when I do that, that's when I start to live and think and act like Jesus. That's when I start to walk in true spiritual authority, friends. This sort of union of suffering and glory, we don't like, but please realize, is what Christmas is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. It's what Emmanuel is all about. God with us, how? God with us up there in the clouds showing us how great and glorious he is. No, he was already up there in the clouds showing us how great and glorious he is. It's God with us in our suffering. You know that song, Silent Night? We sing it every year here. I'm not dissing on Silent Night, sort of. It wasn't a silent night, friends. Jesus cried. Like any other baby when they're born, Jesus cried. And those were bittersweet tears for him because he entered into pain. It was something he had never experienced before. And he did it for us to enter into our suffering so that our suffering would not simply be suffering but repurposed for the sake of glory. So the encouragement for us this morning, friends, is simple. Can we choose to receive his gift? Will you choose with us to let go of anger, fear, jealousy, and control and instead surrender? It sounds easy to say it out loud, and some of you have already checked out, so I just want to welcome you back. Hey, we're still here, right? It sounds easy to say it out loud. Yes, I, of course I choose surrender. No. Surrender means, God, what, whatever the outcome is, I'm going to say yes. Whatever the outcome is, I give you permission. Here it is. But here's the thing. You've got nothing to fear. Johnny Erickson Tata is not afraid. She's one of the strongest people on the planet. She is brave and courageous. She comes into the room and there is glory about her. You see it, you hear it, you know it. In the same way as Heidi Baker, two very different stories, both full of suffering and glory. Yours may be option B, and it will be at different points, but it will also be option A at different points. The issue is not figuring out which option you're going to get. The challenge is surrendering to the God behind them because he's good. He's good, and he's not here to hurt you. 
He's here. What's the purpose of suffering again? To make us whole, perfect, like Jesus, to increase our intimacy that we might know his love and then to empower us to walk in his authority. Are you ready to actually begin to live that way? I love this, the, the passage in Hebrews 11 and 12. Hebrews 11 is the, called the Hall of Heroes, right? And it lists all these people from, uh, from Abraham to, to Isaac to Jacob to, to Moses and Joseph and, and all of the judges. And it says, look at how all of these guys lived and, and these ladies and, and look at how they lived their lives by faith. And then it ends with this. And none of them actually received what was promised to them for they believed that God had something better for them. What? <laughs> and then it says this in, in chapter 12, verse 1. Since, therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and all the sin that easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, do you hear it, the joy set before him, endured the cross. Suffering and glory. It's always been the way. It's the only way in a broken world. But friends, it's the glorious way that's offered to us even this Christmas. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are grateful that you've made it abundantly clear what it means to follow you. We so often, Lord, look at passages like this and we think, how can I get power like that? How do we walk in authority like that? And I praise you that, Lord Jesus, there, there is a way, but that way is always the same. It's to stop looking for power and authority and to start looking for you. We wanna see your face, Lord Jesus. We don't wanna just ask for your hands. We don't want to just ask for what you can give us. We're asking for you. So Jesus, we pray that you come close and have your way in us even today. Jesus, would, would you send your Holy Spirit right now and speak to each of us? Friends, you should have received on the way in here a little ornament, a paper ornament. If you did not, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you one. We're going to do in this time in our service a little different than what we normally do because this is going to be a little response. You're not an audience. You're an army. We are the family of God. And as the family of God, we are called to actually respond. So here's what your invitation is going to be. We got three guys who are going to move the Christmas tree. So now's the time you can do that, guys. Move our Christmas tree and they're going to put it right here in the middle. In just a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, right? But as you come forward for the Lord's Supper, you're going to have that ornament in your hand. But the ornament's not going to be blank anymore. Because we're about to give you just a couple of minutes right now to think and to ask this question. This is our Advent challenge. Where does God want to show up for you and through you this season? We talked a lot about suffering today. So part of that answer might be in suffering. But it might be different altogether. It doesn't matter. We want to ask God what he has to say. Where does God want to show up for you and through you this season? Will you pursue him by asking? And will you surrender by giving him your yes? 
So what we're going to write on that little card right there, on that ornament, is where God wants to either show up for you or through you this season. And here's what we're going to commit to do as a church. We're going to pray. I want you to be praying for what you've written down there, but then we're also going to be praying for all of the ornaments on our tree. To put it differently, we are going to actually cover our Christmas tree in surrender. Think about that for just a minute. Christmas trees so often are a symbol of consumerism and power and me, 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 me. This year, we're going to cover our Christmas tree. Thanks, boys, gentlemen, young men. This year, we're going to cover our Christmas tree with surrender. We're going to say, Lord, where do you want to work in me? Lord, where do you want to work through me? He might have two answers. He might have three answers for you. Whatever it is, I want you to write it down. And then when you come forward for the Lord's Supper, and you'll know when, you can hang it on the tree. But let's just take a, a few minutes right now. I'm going to open our, our time with prayer. Our musicians are going to play behind us. You have a couple minutes just to listen and to write. Holy Spirit, would you come? In Jesus' name, come. We welcome you, Lord. Thanks that you've been here the whole time. But we turn our eyes, we fix our eyes on Jesus. And we ask that right now, Lord, you'd move in each of us to know where. Where do you want to Emmanuel with us this year? Where do you want to be with us, to work through us or to work in us this Christmas season? God, would you show us what to pray so that when we pray, we'll see a yes and amen answer in this Advent season. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening.